1: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we get to hear two interviews on how Entergy, The nuclear industry, some lord, has taken it on the chin in just a little over a week. We hear from Beyond Nuclear's Kevin Camps, who tells us about how a coalition of environmental groups has intervened against Entergy Nuclear's attempt to get the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to roll back safety requirements at its Palisades reactor on the shores of Lake Michigan. Then we check in with Vermont's Leslie Sullivan Sachs of Safe and Green Campaign, regarding the long-desired and recently announced shutdown of Vermont Yankee this month. Huzzah! Plus, we'll have the ever-popular features numbnuts of the week, activist shout-out, a chance to quell to John Stewart, and more nuclear information than Mitch McConnell will ever admit even exists. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 9, 2014, And here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Starting off in the United States this week, where the state of New Mexico has fined the U.S. Energy Department more than $54 million over accidents at the WIP site, Waste Isolation Pilot Plant near Carlsbad, which is the country's only underground repository for nuclear waste. At least it was until this accident shut it down. The fines, which state officials announced on Saturday morning, December 6, stem from the February 5th underground fire and then the Valentine's Day, February 14, radiation leak at WIP. Twenty-two workers at the site tested positive for internal contamination by radionuclides following the accidents. The fines represent the largest penalties New Mexico has ever levied against the Energy Department and are based on major procedural problems discovered by the state. New Mexico officials say the Energy Department committed 37 violations of state regulations in its handling of radioactive waste. Drums of the waste were improperly treated and stored at Los Alamos National Laboratory before being shipped to the nuclear repository. And according to the state, that contributed to the accidents last February. 54000000 54 million doesn't sound like much in light of the 500 million that it is now estimated it will take over a period of five years to put this facility back into operation. And nobody in their right mind believes it's ever going to go back into operation, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. New disinformation about the accident comes from a guest column in the Albuquerque Journal by one Harish C. Sharma a retired engineer who confuses the issue about the kitty litter that was used in the drums by Los Alamos. He uses the phrase kitty litter slash zeolite clay and says that this may have been the cause of the fire and release of radiation. However, the kitty litter that was used was wheat-based. It was organic. Zeolite clay is inert and actually has been used to mitigate against radiation leaks, most specifically at Chernobyl, where it was dumped on the radioactive remains of that reactor before the first sarcophagus was built and also baked into cookies that was given to children on the ground in the area so that they would have it in their bodies to help fix and remove radiation from their bodies. And who knew that Robert Redford or at least the filmmakers he worked with, had ESP and precognition, because in the film from 1989 entitled The Whip Trail, Robert Redford's narration says in part, We now know that 40% of the whip hazardous waste is combustible, thus posing a more serious and immediate problem. He later says, The worst-case scenario would be if a fire occurs within a breach of containment, the wind would then carry plutonium particles through the atmosphere, traveling considerable distances. Which, according to watchdogs, around whip is exactly what happened. But don't think you're going to see your tax dollars cleaning this stuff up anytime soon because the U.S. government recently argued in court filings that the state of Washington's request for $18 billion over 14 years to clean up the Hanford site should be rejected based on expense. It's not too expensive to make the mess. In Hanford's case, dating back to the Manhattan Project, and here is the best nugget buried in this story. The U.S. Department of Justice said in a court filing on Friday, December 5th, that the cost of the state's, Washington state's, proposal for a hastened cleanup of the Hanford Nuclear Reservation would cast into doubt Other Nuclear Projects Funded by the Department of Energy. Yeah. In other words, hold their feet to the fire to clean up the mess they made and show how much it's going to cost, and, oops, it's entirely possible that other nuclear projects won't get funded. By the way, Hanford is located along the Columbia River in south-central Washington, and is the site of 177 massive underground nuclear storage tanks. This makes it the largest collection of nuclear waste in the U.S., or, as the Hanford watchdog group Heart of America Northwest calls it, the most contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere. Boys, boys, didn't your mother ever tell you, don't start what you can't finish? And you're not going anywhere until you clean up your room or the Western Hemisphere. In Wyoming, six workers at a uranium mine inhaled that radioactive element while cleaning up a spill inside a processing building over a year ago, on November 28, 2013, at the Lost Creek in situ uranium mine. The workers' urine tested positive for uranium at close to seven times the federal agency's permissible level. The NRC's limit is 15 micrograms per liter, but the workers' urine afterwards tested between 24 and 102.5 micrograms per liter. Mine operator Ur-Energy's president, Wayne Hiley, said the employees involved in the cleanup had no ill effects and their exposure remained well below the maximum possible annual limit. Dude, The effects take anywhere from 3 to 15 years to begin to show up and then continue to be dangerous for the rest of their lives. But did the NRC cite Ur-Energy for the spill or worker exposure? No! The NRC cited the company for failing to issue a radiation work permit for cleaning up the spill. Uh, By the way, The company president said he believed the workers were wearing respirators at the time, which makes it even worse because, even with protection, they were contaminated. Now, it is in the U.S. government's and the nuclear industry's best interests to hide the impact of this technology on the health of its workers, in part because, as has now come to light, More than 8,000 current or former workers of the Department of Energy's nuclear site in Aiken, South Carolina, the Savannah River site, have received at least $800 million in federal compensation and paid medical expenses for job-related illnesses, this according to Labor Department data. The payments under a little-noticed federal program represent a fraction of the staggering nationwide toll of a nuclear weapons industry born out of the Cold War. More than 104,000 sick workers have received almost $11 billion in compensation and medical expenses. But in order to get these payments, workers and their families have to wade through a series of complicated laws to determine whether their cancers or other illnesses were caused by the work and if they can prove it. There is a large article that goes into a lot of detail on this issue in the Raleigh, North Carolina News Observer, and we will have a link to this up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under episode number 181. And here is yet another article on the nuclear industry's responsibility, or lack thereof, To those who have been injured by its technology. This happened in Japan where 50 non-governmental organizations released a declaration to protest the Convention on Supplementary Compensation for Nuclear Damage, CSC, which doesn't protect the people. It protects the nuclear power technology vendors from responsibility for reparations and does not protect the victims of nuclear power accidents. Isn't that special? On November 19, this legislation was ratified by the Japanese House of Counselors, which is the equivalent of their Senate. Legally considered to be a treaty, it promotes the export of nuclear power technology while ignoring the lessons of the Fukushima accident. And again, we will have a link to this up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, on the blog page. Continuing in Japan, Dale Klein, a former chair of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the chair of a third-party panel commissioned by Tokyo Electric Power to oversee the reform of its nuclear decision, that's what they called it, a reform, Klein said that TEPCO should convene a panel of nuclear power plant operators from outside Japan to review its safety standards. So where would said operators come from? Klein suggested U.S nuke operators such as Southern Company, Exelon Corp, and Pinnacle West Capital Corp's Arizona Public Service subsidiary. It's the good old boys' backslapping club. No honest critique expected or encouraged. And now
0: it is time for nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that
1: sound a week. Well, it's double numbnuts this week, two for the price of one. The Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan on December 23rd hosted one Wade Allison, who has the really impressive title of Emeritus Professor of Physics at Oxford University, but who proved to be a living, if only barely, example of exactly what brought the British Empire down. In an incoherent, rambling, stumbling, muttering, pause-laden discourse, this bespoke-suited remnant of the British Raj proceeded to tell all of us that we were silly, do you hear me, silly, to be afraid of radiation, and that Fukushima was no big thing, and we should all bring our children around to nuclear reactors for a fun time with Mom and Dad. At another point, he said, Here in Japan, people go to onsen, meaning hot springs, and enjoy the effects of radioactive contamination of the groundwater. Everybody's very happy to do that. That's what they do on holiday. And then at one point, he actually said, Triple meltdown? Where did you get those words from? Hollywood? What do you mean by a triple meltdown? So what? I'm telling you, so nothing very much. Triple meltdown, well, so what? It wasn't a tragedy. Now, one might suspect Alzheimer's or alcohol or maybe drug interactions or just a bad case of lizard-brained sociopathy behind anyone being able to say that as though it were the God's honest truth and how dare you not take him as the ultimate authority on all things radiation. Okay, so maybe the guy's on the far side of sanity and maybe it's not appropriate to make fun of the mentally ill. However, this guy was presenting to a room full of international journalists at the Foreign Correspondence Club of Japan. Did you not vet this guy? I contacted the FCCJ and they said that in order to get a proposal accepted by them, it has to be sent to the Professional Activities Committee, which consists of members of the club who are all international journalists. If they think it has a news peg or is newsworthy, They'll provide the room. They will make all of the arrangements. And they warned me that generally 50% of all proposals have been turned down. So why in the world was this dinosaur accepted? The old fart was so over the edge and so incoherent that to call him a numbnuts would be a compliment. But Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan Why did you not do a better job of finding out who this person really was in advance before you gave over your precious time and space and attention to such a vile, lying topic? And that's why this week, Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, and most specifically, the members of your Professional Activities Committee, you... Are Nuclear hot
0: seat, none that sound
1: awake. And in case anybody is confused about what's actually happening with radiation up at Fukushima Daiichi, according to TEPCO itself, their most recent report on strontium-90 concentration in an underground observation hole, which was taken on October 2nd of this year, reports that while TEPCO's permissible limits for water discharge of strontium-90 is 10 becquerels per liter, the actual amount in the sample? 990,000 becquerels per liter. That's 99,000 times higher than what's permissible. And even that's too high. By the time you hear this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, The Japan Secrets Act implementation will have begun, and we do not yet know what that impact will be. However, looking internationally, the new United Kingdom Secrets Act has already been implemented. That started on April second, 2014. Surprised? I certainly was when I learned about it. And here's the worst part. Nuclear information considered secret by the British government will be retroactively punished. Will the Japanese who disseminate health and nuclear information also be retroactively punished by their new Secrets Act? We will be tracking both of these very closely. In Ukraine, there either was or was not a nuclear accident that did or did not pose a major risk. The story first hit on December 3rd, that Unit 3 of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant tripped on November 28th. Because of the time lag between the accident and the report, a firestorm resulted in international media that took on apocalyptic proportions. Ukraine's Energy Minister Vladimir Demchishin told reporters on December 3 that there is no threat, there are no problems with the reactor, and blamed all fears on misinformation distributed by some media. Of course, in the absence of honest information, when it's been six days since an accident happened and you haven't reported it, Vladimir, you can expect people to be a wee bit suspicious. There was, however, one apocalypse that did happen as a result of this accident, and that is the Ukrainian bond market, where investors indulged in panic selling And a $2.6 billion bond due in 2017 fell to just $0.72.3 on the dollar and another slumped to $0.82.5 on the dollar, both of them record lows. If they'd let us know in a timely manner, it might not have been that bad. German public television broadcaster SWR has uncovered plutonium waste being dumped into the ocean through miles of underwater pipes. The dumping of nuclear waste in the sea was banned worldwide in 1993. Yet the nuclear industry has come with other ways they're so clever. They no longer dump in barrels at sea. They build kilometers or miles of underground pipes through which the radioactive effluent now flows freely into the sea. By disposing of the waste through these pipes, it remains hidden from the public eye. 400 kilometers, or 250 miles, from La Hague in France, as well as Holland and Germany, the broadcasters found iodine that was five times higher than reported by nuke operator Arriva. A second disposal pipe for Europe's nuclear waste is located in the north of England, coming from Sellafield. Operators argue semantically that this really is still land-based disposal, which is legal, but quite frankly, that's just lying by linguistic manipulation. Plutonium can be found on a daily basis left lying on the beach and has been found at levels up to 10 times higher than the permissible limit, which, of course, is too high to begin with. Finally, Luke or sell. The president and CEO of Arriva, the French nuclear company, has passed away. He left Arriva on October 20th for health reasons, saying, I must now fight a personal battle against the illness. No word of what that illness was. Might it be that the nuclear operator doesn't want to know that its CEO died, perhaps, of cancer? How embarrassing would that be? We'll have our featured interviews in just a moment, but first, tis the season for all of you to be hit up and ask for donations to all the different groups that you believe in and trust and want to support. Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support as well. I'm out of pocket every month and I don't have much of a pocket, and I could really use your help to meet the expenses that go towards making this podcast as good as it can possibly be. Your support will help me continue to help you understand the nuclear issue with as much humor, attitude, and accuracy as I can manage. So if we make you think, laugh, make you feel part of a community of activists, help it keep going. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and click on the big red donation button. Whatever you can do to help, it's greatly appreciated. And then, go to the rest of the groups you like and give them something as well. We're all in this together. Well, Entergy Corporation, generally acknowledged to be the slumlord of the nuclear reactor industry, has been taking some real body blows on the chin and some more sensitive parts of the anatomy this week. Nuclear Hot Seat has two interviews to prove it. First, we'll hear from Kevin Camps, who is the nuclear waste watchdog some might say bulldog, for beyond nuclear. Kevin specializes in high-level waste management and transportation issues, new and existing reactors, decommissioning, Congress Watch, climate change, and federal subsidies. He's Tom Hartman's favorite nuclear commentator and one of mine as well. Note that when Kevin mentions radiation leaks in Vermont, he is referring directly to the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Generating Station. Kevin Camps, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Thanks a lot for having me.
1: Palisades Nuclear Generating Station in Michigan is directly across Lake Michigan, only about 70 miles from Chicago, and has been in operation now for 44 years. It has a long history of safety problems. Briefly, tell us what you can about that history and some of our concerns.
2: Palisades began as a lemon. There was a lawsuit between the utility company and the reactor vendor called Combustion Engineering, as well as the California-based builder of the plant, Bechtel. But that lawsuit was settled, and then the plant was fired up without fixing the problems, and away she went back in 1971. And it's been a comedy of errors ever since, only it's not funny. So you've got... Internal reactor problems that date back to 1972, that was the first year of operation. By the 10th year of operation in 1981, you had severe embrittlement of the reactor pressure vessel, and that's the focus of our current intervention against Palisades. They're the worst embrittled reactor pressure vessel in the entire country. This is an affliction that's especially bad in pressurized water reactors like Palisades, and Palisades is the worst in the country in that regard.
1: Explain what embrittlement means for those who might not be familiar with the term.
2: This refers to the neutron radiation bombardment of what's called the belt line of the reactor pressure vessel. This is the center line of the reactor pressure vessel. There are welds there where the plates that form the reactor pressure vessel, and these are eight inches thick plates of steel, are welded together. And the problem is that back in the old days, back when Palisades was fabricated in the late 1960s, a lot of copper was introduced into not only the walls of the reactor pressure vessel, which contains the nuclear core, but especially in the welds where the plates come together. And that neutron bombardment flowing out of the core of the chain reaction is poking microscopic holes in that metal crystal. And what can happen is in a pressurized thermal shock, this is a lowering of the temperature as when the emergency core cooling system is activated, combined with a pressure shock, the repressurization, we're talking 2,200 pounds of pressure per square inch in a pressurized water reactor. You can literally fracture the reactor pressure vessel like a hot glass under cold water And if that happens, you have a loss of coolant accident, you have a core meltdown, and very likely you have a containment failure, and that all adds up to a catastrophic release of hazardous radioactivity.
1: This sounds like a situation that needs to be monitored very closely. What is put in place to be part of this monitoring system, and how good has Entergy been about holding up their end of the bargain?
2: Not good at all. They're really living up to their reputation of being a rogue corporation. That's how they're referred to by the political leaders of Vermont for several years now after they lied to the state of Vermont under oath about radioactivity leaks into soil. When Entergy purchased Palisades from the previous owner, Consumers Energy, back in 2007, it was with the implicit understanding that Entergy would fix the severe problems of Palisades, including embrittlement of the reactor pressure vessel, And now Entergy has owned the plant for eight years. They have not dealt with this problem. They have no plans to deal with this problem other than to change the assessment methodology by which it figures how bad the embrittlement is. And every time this happens, all of a sudden, what was an end-of-life date for the plant is pushed back further off into the future, So when we intervened against the license extension at Palisades a decade ago, we were told that Palisades would violate embrittlement safety standards by the year 2014. Just a few years ago, that date was pushed further off into the future to 2017. And now this latest license amendment request by Entergy wants to push that date even further off into the future. So they magically fix this problem on paper when, in fact, in reality, they're not addressing the problem at all.
1: There seems to be something called coupons, which are pieces of metal that were intentionally placed in the reactor pressure vessel with welds on them so that they could be pulled out at a later date and tested to find out what the status of the embrittlement is. How good has Entergy been about testing these coupons, as they're called, and what's wrong with their logic?
2: they have gone without tests that were supposed to be carried out after they took ownership of the plant. So there was a test scheduled for 2007. That's right when Entergy took over the plant, and they simply postponed that test, not for a short period of time either, until 2019. And so the last test that was actually done on one of these capsules or coupons at Palisades was way back in 2003 by the previous owner, Consumers Energy, And so if energy sticks to this very lax schedule, that means that 16 years will have elapsed between 2003 and 2019, and so they have no handle whatsoever on the actual physical reality of how bad the embrittlement is. Instead, they're relying on estimations, extrapolations, mathematical calculations. It's really a form of pencil whipping, and they have no idea what the actual physical status is.
1: Arnie Gunderson, the nuclear engineer and head of Fairwinds Energy Education, has come on board with citizen activists and a coalition of environmental groups, including Beyond Nuclear, Don't Waste Michigan, Michigan's Safe Energy Future, and the Chicago-based Nuclear Energy Information Service to file a petition against Entergy. What are they asking and who are they asking it of?
2: This is an intervention and request for hearing to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and what our coalition of environmental groups and concerned local residents is seeking is a full adjudicatory proceeding, a full hearing in the light of day so that our expert, Arnie Gunderson, can go over the documents and can go over the evidence and we can, in the light of day, expose what has been a game that's been played for years and decades at Palisades where this problem is pencil whipped away and basic tenets of science are out the window. Things like physical data upon which to base your estimates and your extrapolations. So that's what we're calling for is a hearing. And in that regard, it's very similar to what happened at San Onofre in Southern California, where Friends of the Earth with Arnie Gunderson as their expert and other experts, demanded a full public hearing about the flawed steam generator replacement at San Onofre. So what we're doing here is demanding a uh, a public hearing.
1: I was at many of those hearings where we were demanding a fully adjudicated hearing and actually repeated that phrase consistently. Every speaker repeated that phrase so that it could not be missed either by the NRC, the people in the audience, or the members of the media who were there. What do you feel are the chances here of getting that kind of a hearing?
2: Well, we feel very lucky to have Arnie Gunderson on our team. We also have a very talented attorney from Toledo named Terry Lodge, who's a longtime uh nuclear watchdog in the Midwest.
1: He's terrific. Uh,
2: yes, and he's our attorney in different proceedings for uh, you know, full disclosure here, Davis-Besse license extension, Fermi 2 license extension, Fermi 3 proposed new reactor in Michigan. So this is going to be our fourth intervention as a coalition in what I lovingly refer to as the radioactive rust belt, because I'm from there, I can get away with that. So we're very hopeful. We've been waiting a decade for an opportunity like this at Palisades. I think Entergy figured it was going to get away with this, that we were asleep at the wheel, but we're actually very vigilant at Palisades because it had such a bad run in 2011, just after Fukushima 2012. They actually had an incident at Palisades, it was uh, September 25th of 2011, where an electrician was nearly electrocuted, half the power to the control room was lost, it threw the safety and cooling systems haywire, and it almost activated the emergency core cooling system, which would have tested these pressurized thermal shock risks in the real world, which you don't want to do. Arnie has
1: said that Entergy's Palisades facility is like an ice fishing shack sitting on progressively thinner ice, and he said that it is sheer chicanery, keeping Palisades afloat.
2: Entergy is infamous for buying reactors dirt cheap and running them into the ground, and in fact, the previous owner had a short list, not such a short list, of major fixes that needed to be repaired. We've talked about the reactor pressure vessel, but the steam generators need to be replaced not for the first time, but for the second time in Palisades history, which is unique in industry. The reactor lid is severely degraded, not unlike the davis Bessie hole hole-in-the-head fiasco. The list goes on and on, and Entergy has made none of those fixes, so that thin ice metaphor actually applies across the board at Palisades.
1: Where does this go from here? Entergy has made their license amendment application. You have filed a petition for an intervention. What's the process from this point forward?
2: We filed on December 1st of 2014, and that gives the other side, which is Entergy Nuclear, and chances are very high, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff itself, their chance to come back at us in opposition. And I believe that they have 25 days for that. And we have another week after that to respond on SIR rebuttal. So that's going to put that right in the middle of the holidays, especially for us to uh, keep this proceeding alive. And we're hoping that an Atomic Safety and Licensing Board panel will be seated, a three administrative judge panel to hear this proceeding. And then sometime in the new year, they would perhaps hold a pre-hearing oral argument where they can ask all sides questions. And then determine whether we are worthy of a hearing.
1: Would these initial hearings be
2: open to the public? My experience in several proceedings has been that the pre-hearing oral arguments are open to the public, but that can mean simply the public that's able to attend in person. Sometimes the licensing board panels are of that school, which is unfortunate, because, of course, people over a broad area are interested in this. Sometimes we've been able to convince licensing board panels to make it accessible by telephone. So there's a call-in, listen-only line. We've had that experience recently at Davis-Bessey regarding the cracking of the concrete containment shield building. And we had a fair number of folks call in, not just near Toledo to that proceeding, but from all over the place. So we're hoping to get one of those accessible, public accessible hearings.
1: No chance for live streaming, I take it.
2: For some reason, the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board will not incorporate state-of-the-art technology in that way and make it accessible to large numbers of people, both through audio and through video. Gee, I wonder why. There's a lot of obscurity with these processes. Uh You certainly see it when you're a party to the proceeding. They often rule against us based on hyper-technical legalities, deadlines that are missed that were very obscure to begin with. Rules that are a mile long, and if you mess up in any regard, they can use that as grounds to get rid of you. And another aspect of this is just making it as obscure as possible to the public and to the media so that it's difficult even to physically follow the proceedings, let alone to understand what's being talked about.
1: What can those of us who are concerned about the issues and wish to give our support
2: do if there are opportunities to bear witness alongside of us in solidarity, please absolutely do that. And we will make that known broadly as quickly as possible once those hearing dates are set and call in numbers are provided. If so, another way, just to be frank, is that we are scrambling to raise the funding to pay Arnie Gunderson for his expert witness. Involvement. We're scrambling to raise the funding to pay Terry Lodge for his lawyering in this proceeding. So anyone who's able to make a tax deductible contribution to Beyond Nuclear, you can put a notation on your check and we will make sure it goes towards the Palisades pressurized thermal shock work.
1: Anything you'd like to add?
2: Just that this issue is not particular only to Palisades. Palisades is very likely the worst reactor pressure vessel in terms of brittleness in the country. But this is an issue for all pressurized water reactors, and it's really kind of a race towards the cliff edge. You've got reactors like Diablo Canyon that have serious embrittlement problems. You've got reactors across the country, pressurized water reactors, that are at risk of pressurized thermal shock, which is an accident sequence that has no contingency. Once you lose the reactor pressure vessel, once you have a crack in it, The cooling water, which is in liquid form, will turn to steam, will escape the reactor pressure vessel, will leave the nuclear core uncovered. And when you're at 100 percent power, that core is going to melt down right away. There is no contingency other than the containment structure, and if the meltdown is bad enough, that's going to burn its way right through the foundations of the containment, like we've seen at Fukushima Daiichi. So this is a very serious issue that's been on the radar screen at the NRC for decades, and yet they continue to weaken the regulations.
1: Could you get me a list of the pressurized water reactors in the U.S. so I can use that in my follow-up on this?
2: Yeah, I sure can. There's a total of 69. It's the majority of reactors in the country.
1: Wow. Any further thoughts?
2: Well, I think the involvement of Nuclear Energy Information Service of Chicago just underscores the reality that Palisades is on the shore of Lake Michigan at the headwaters of the Great Lakes. Lake Michigan is not only the drinking water supply for the city of Chicago, but for around 15 million people on the Lake Michigan shoreline altogether. And when you count the rest of the Great Lakes downstream, we're talking the drinking water supply for 40 million people in eight U.S. states and two Canadian provinces and a large number of Native American First Nations. So if something happens at Palisades that releases a large amount of hazardous radioactivity into the Great Lakes bioregion, you're talking impacts on tens of millions of people just this generation, not to count the future generations to come.
1: That was Beyond Nuclear's nuclear waste watchdog, Kevin Camps. We'll have a link to his list of not 69 pressurized water reactors, as he mentioned in the interview. Four more have closed since the list was initially compiled. But the current list of 65 still active pressurized water reactors in the United States. And in case you're in doubt as to how serious this might be for you and yours, we'll have a link up to CNN's site, to find out how far you live from a nuclear reactor, maybe even one of those 65. Both links will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 181. While energy was being hit hard by some sustainable power from our movement's troops, it took an even bigger hit in New England when the company announced the closing of Vermont Yankee Nuclear Generating Station by the end of this year. That's a maximum of 22 days from right now as I record this. Happy dance, happy dance. To get filled in on the background and join the celebration, I spoke with Leslie Sullivan Sachs. She is project manager of the Safe and Green Campaign, a now successful grassroots effort by citizens in Vermont Yankees' evacuation zone to use direct action and public education to shut it down. She also produces social media and does research for Fairwinds Energy Education. And from 1985 to 2010, Leslie was on the staff of Vermont Law School, the number one environmental law school in the United States, as assistant director of the Environmental Law Center.
0: Leslie, first of all, congratulations to you and all the other activists who worked on the shutdown of Vermont Yankee.
3: Well, thank you, Libby. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me onto your program. What advance awareness did you have about the
0: shutdown taking place? Were you expecting it, and were you expecting it by the end of this year?
3: No, we were We were frankly shocked. Uh, we had been closely following Entergy's shaky financial news over the past year, but Entergy had fought for years to win the right to operate the reactor ...for an additional 20 years. They had just won that relicensing fight. Two weeks before the closing announcement... Energy had won a federal preemption case against Vermont. The court said that Vermont legislators had overstepped their authority... ...in trying to have limited, non-safety-related powers... ...over the future operation of Vermont Yankee. That was just two weeks before the announcement. So we were quite surprised...
0: What was the reason that Entergy gave for this unexpected and very early shutdown?
3: They said that it had to do with competition from natural gas and other financial reasons. They had been unable to get any power purchase agreements from utilities in Vermont. So they were kind of left holding the bag there, and they said that it was only for financial reasons.
0: The refusal of the utilities to purchase power from Vermont Yankee, was that something that was orchestrated and promoted by the activists, or was this something that happened in an organic way out of the needs and the decisions of the utilities?
3: Oh, they saw the writing on the wall. They saw how difficult it was for energy to get this relicense for 20 years. You know, we had town meeting votes where all but the home town voted to shut down Vermont Yankee. We elected a governor who said he wanted to shut down Vermont Yankee. The utility companies saw what was coming, and they were uncertain as to whether they would be able to get power from Vermont Yankee at all. Entergy was unable to make any power purchase agreements with any of the utilities. They were not offering a price, but the utilities would agree to. At the very last minute, the night before, a historic vote by the Vermont Senate. They sent their guys up from New Orleans to offer what they thought was a really good deal, but what the state of Vermont clearly thought was a bribe. And when you say this historic vote, when did it take place and what did it consist of? The historic vote was in February of 2010. It followed a walk by activists from Brattleboro, Vermont, 126 miles to the state house in Montpelier in January in Vermont. All the while the activists were marching, tritium was leaking from the plant. It was quite fortuitous. Luck was on our side. In a manner of speaking, in terms of influencing public policy, luck was on our side. It was certainly not lucky that we had tritium leaking, but the timing was really interesting. In February 26 to 4, essentially the short story is not to renew the license for Vermont Yankee. It was a historic day. There was a blizzard the day that the Senate vote was going to take place, and people drove four hours through a blizzard to fill the Senate, overflowing. And we listened all day as, one after another, the senators stood and made their arguments for and against Vermont Yankee. And um, after many, many hours of debate, the Senate voted 26 to 4 not to renew the license of Vermont Yankee. They essentially were giving advice to our Public Utility Commission here in Vermont.
0: With the license not being renewed, when would the current license run out?
3: Well, there's two licenses we're talking about here. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, of course, has its licensing process. And two weeks after Fukushima, they approved the license extension for 20 years for Vermont Yankee. Two weeks after Fukushima. Vermont Yankee is the same reactor as the ones in Fukushima. It's a boiling water reactor. It's from the same time period, built by the same company. It was shocking. Two weeks afterwards. Then our limited powers that the state has to give its thumbs up based on economic need and reliability and that kind of thing. And consistently what the owners have done over the years is say, we'll throw some extra money at you for things such as clean energy development as a kind of swap. But a state has no say over safety. And when the Senate voted 26 to 4, they voted on a bill that didn't have anything to do with safety. But energy dragged the state of Vermont into court saying that even though the bill didn't say anything about safety, the intention really was to shut it down for safety reasons.
0: How important was Governor Shumlin's support to this shutdown?
3: Oh, it was very important. His predecessor had been very cozy with Entergy and very supportive of Vermont Yankee. Governor Shumlin ran on a shut-it-down platform, and he stayed consistent with that platform after the election. He was in the Senate when they voted to shut it down, and then after that term, his Senate term was up, he ran for election and won. As we know from our experiences post-shutdown of
0: San Onofre here in Southern California, the work is not over. What is the next area of concern that is going to be addressed by the activists in Vermont regarding Vermont Yankee?
3: There's all that waste. As you probably know, Libby, the NRC has pretty much given up responsibility to the waste and left it all for we, the host, to safeguard. We have no faith that a repository or a solution is going to be found for this stuff, and we're assuming that they will leave it on our lands here on the banks of the Connecticut River. And so we now have to act as its guardians. We have to advocate for the best storage possible. Europe and Japan use far superior storage systems than we do in the U.S. And Donna Gilmore at San Onofre has done really great work on this issue. And um, we're taking that where we can. States and citizens have very little to no say in the decommissioning process. So it's a tough haul. The other thing that we're concerned about is the emergency planning zone. Sixteen months after the closure, energy plans to release any responsibility for emergency planning beyond the gate of the reactor itself. And we just think that's crazy. They're going to be moving fuel from the spent fuel pool into dry task storage. That's a very dangerous operation. And we deserve to be protected while that is going on. So those are two issues: the waste and emergency planning that we're working on. What can other communities that host nuclear reactors learn
0: from Vermont's experience?
3: One is that there are many kinds of activists in this nuclear power issue. There's folks who approach the issue from a moral stance. There are engineers. Who see the light there are legal eagles and policymakers who understand how regulations work and there's just plain folks who live in the shadow of the reactor there's people who perform street theater there are monks who lead walks there are all kinds of activists and we need to be open and supportive of each other and understand that there's no silver bullet it takes everything we can to throw at this industry Public education and direct action, working with your legislators, legal intervention. you got to do it all. One thing that we did that that was difficult but worked very well is that less than a year before the relicensing was up, we formed an alliance of all the different groups working on Vermont Yankee. And because we had been involved for 40 years in activism to shut this down, you know, we had a little history to get over at some spots. But, boy, were we powerful when we came out of it. We had action after action after action after action leading up to these big dates and anniversary dates, and that was very effective. We've
0: been following Vermont Yankee very closely on Nuclear Hot Seat, and I have to say the spirit of the activism, the affinity group of the women who were all 60 and over, the use of props, the use of laugh track buttons, the number of times that 92-year-old Frances got herself arrested, all of that kept the issue very visible in front of people and allowed further actions to take place. With all the effort of all the people in this alliance who have worked for so long to make it happen, what in the world are you people doing to celebrate?
3: (laughs) Well, we've already had two parties. (laughs) We had actually planned to have an exhibit of beautiful photographs of 40 years of Vermont Yankee activism. And that was already promoted out in the newspapers and everything. And then they announced the closing. So that event turned into a love fest. It was just phenomenal. And then we had a party last November. There was a blast, and we have planned another one for this coming January. Yankee Unplugged. nuclear free New Year. Well, if we can
0: possibly tag into that for Nuclear Hot Seat and get some of the ecstatic celebratory voices on, I would love to share with people so we can all take part in this massive success because we're now going to be down as of the end of this year from 100 to 99. Absolutely.
3: We are at a tipping point, and we can push it right over the edge. Anything you would like to add at this time? I guess the only thing I would say is that we are inviting everyone working on extreme energy in the Northeast to come to our party in January. We're also fighting gas pipelines on our lands in Massachusetts and in Vermont and in New Hampshire and in Maine. This is not a movement isolated in itself. We have many, many comrades out there, and we all need to celebrate this victory together.
1: That was Leslie Sullivan Sachs of Safe and Green Campaign, one of the successful participants in the 40-year battle to shut down Vermont Yankee Nuclear Generating Station. Activist shout-out. Well, all of you guys who participated in each of those energy actions, brava, brava. And my thanks to Gail Snyder of NEIS in Chicago for her help in pulling together the Palisades part of the story. John Stewart! Hey, Samantha B, really knocked it out of the park with her December 3 report on the fracking company that painted its drill bits pink and tried to get in tight with the Susan B. Coleman Race for the Cure people. Sam didn't buy it, and neither did we. However, she made the nuke-frack connection brilliantly and did so only one day after Nuclear Hot Seat did the same thing during numbnuts of the Week. Similar minds, John. Similar minds. So isn't it time you got this mind directly involved with your show? Meanwhile, I took a great screenshot from Sam B.'s report, and it's up on the website under this episode number 181. And John... Lots of other great stories of nuclear stupidity out there. So let's plan on getting together to get some more of those stories out on your show in the new year, okay? Here's today's final thought. An obscure op-ed posted on ENE News highlighted what I've come to believe is the ultimate arena in the battle over nuclear. Radiation. Our understanding of what it is, what it actually does, and how long its effects last. On December 4, the Daily Star, which bills itself as Bangladesh's leading English newspaper, published an op-ed piece by Dr. Kumrul Haider, chair of the Department of Physics at New York's Fordham University. In it, he wrote, in part, The fraternity of nuclear scientists create the impression their extremely risky projects have been carefully thought out in every detail and are inspired by the spirit of greatest responsibility. A large section of the scientific community believes that by building nuclear power plants in populated areas, the whole world becomes an experimental laboratory with human beings as guinea pigs. The basic difference between nuclear and other industrial accidents lies in the long-range repercussions. One could forget about the havoc wrought, for example, by the explosion of a gas pipeline or the breaching of a dam. But an accident in a nuclear power plant, such as a reactor getting out of control, is capable of doing more than immediate harm. Examples of the deadly long-term effects of a nuclear accident are Chernobyl and Fukushima, which will linger on for ages to haunt future generations. Among the survivors, there will be many cases of permanent sterility, increase of genetic mutation in our progenies, and a shortened lifespan as a result of cancer and other radiogenic diseases. It is irresponsible and misleading to suppress the consequences of radiation. Attempts are made to blind the people by equating nuclear accidents with more familiar hazards, an unlimited risk falsely portrayed as a limited one, and glossed over in a manner that is not only unconscionable, but also unpardonable. The far-reaching consequences of lethal radiation are overly simplified. In the post-Chernobyl, post-Fukushima era, these do not hold water. Wars, plagues, famines, and natural disasters were known as the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. After Chernobyl and Fukushima, nuclear accidents can be added as another Horseman of the Apocalypse. Happy Holidays! This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 9, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from ENE Wall Street Journal, Santa Fe, New Mexican, The Whip Trail, a film narrated by Robert Redford, RT.com, Associated Press, NewsObserver.com, NewYorkTimes.com, No Nukes Asia Forum Japan, Reuters, TEPCO, the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, NuclearNews.net, CNN, Financial Times, SWR, the German Public TV Network. The Sociopaths over at WorldNuclearNews.org, and the Ho-Ho-Homo Sapiens of the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, which you are all invited to join. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilyn Weaver. Looks like Weber, sounds like Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and is also available on AirProgressive.com. Our archive is available on iTunes, you can subscribe under podcasts, or just check us out on the website NuclearHotSeat.com. Our YouTube channel carries the show courtesy the support of Joni Ray. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2014. Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed to not-for-profit groups, blogs, and websites. You guys have my permission to reuse as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. Reminding you that Sister Megan Rice is still in prison for her second Christmas, for the crime of protesting nuclear weapons and embarrassing the United States government. And we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all
0: in the nuclear hot seat.